Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been talking for a couple of episodes about Shakespeare's witty, delightful comedy of manners, Much Ado About Nothing. And I wanted to step back for a moment at the beginning and remind us of what we have seen so far in the play. I usually try to do that both in teaching and in the podcast. The episodes only appear every week and it's so easy to forget what we have said before. But that is even more true, I think, about a play like Much Ado, because here there is very little action, almost none. It is all talk, and the talk is the action. What is significant in the play is the talk. And it turns upon the key motif word of noting, a word used repeatedly in the play. And as critics point out, the title of the play is in effect a kind of pun, an oral pun, much ado about nothing, but in Elizabethan pronunciation, it would have been much ado about noting. And the pun is actually made within the play. Everyone is noting everything, meaning taking note of, in a more modern turn of phrase. And that has both a visual aspect, people are observing, and sometimes they are deliberately putting on shows or putting on an appearance visually. But it's also an oral reference people are taking note of in the sense of hearing, overhearing, eavesdropping, and spreading stories, lies, and truth. We open the play with the men returning from war and are introduced to the two parallel love plots of two couples in the play, Benedict and Beatrice and Claudio and Hero. They are clearly a contrast and intended as a contrast. Benedict and Beatrice may be a little bit older we're not told that specifically, but there is the sense, if only because these two have had a past history. They once had a relationship and it broke up and now they're keeping a wary distance from each other. There's also a sense of perhaps a little greater maturity on the part of these two. The war may be over, the literal war, but Benedict and Beatrice are continuing to conduct what the play calls their merry war, verbal warfare, back and forth, barbs of wit directed at each other constantly. And it's clear to us and it's clear to their friends in the play that this is a defensive mechanism. This is a war of defense, you might say. They have both, both been hurt by each other in the past and are trying to protect themselves. Nevertheless, 
it's clear to us and clear to their friends that they do love each other. They're just afraid to admit it. And the friends are going to put into action a plot, a benign plot to bring these two together despite all of their defensive wariness. This originates with the character who is of the highest social rank in the play. There is a quiet but persistent theme of social class going on behind the scenes of Much Ado, and Don Pedro is explicitly said to be the highest in terms of social ranking, above even Leonardo and Antonio, the two brothers. Everyone is being put up after the war at Leonardo's place, and Leonardo has a daughter, Hero, who will be half of the other love couple in the play. She is the object of attention of Claudio, young Claudio, who observes her, he notes her, in other words, and immediately starts a line of inquiry. He goes to ask Benedict about her. Then he goes directly to her father, Leonardo, because this is a very patriarchal setup in terms of getting Hero married. She is very subject to the patriarchal rule of her father, who in turn is controlled by Don Pedro. And it's really conducted just a little bit too much like a transaction for our taste, perhaps, and for Benedict's taste, who quietly inserts an occasional dry remark about wouldst thou buy her? And in fact, it is a transaction. And in fact, Claudio deliberately asks whether Hero has any siblings, clearly having in mind whether there is an inheritance that would be divided. Am I going to get the full inheritance if I marry this girl? There is, however lighthearted the play mostly is, there are ironies, as there often are in Shakespeare, if you're looking for them. And they cluster around the Claudio Hero relationship. Leonardo is open to the idea of having Claudio marry Hero. Don Pedro, who has this thing about being a matchmaker for some reason, even though, to foreshadow, he is someone who will actually not end up one of the married couples at the end. Shakespeare does this every so often. He does it in Merchant of Venice. He has a character who is someone who stands apart from the main action of a Shakespearean romantic comedy, which is to get everybody married off in the fifth act with multiple weddings. But there is some, sometimes one who stands apart, as Antonio does in Merchant of Venice, and as Don Pedro will do here. But nevertheless, acts as an agent and a matchmaker trying to get the other couples together. And here, 
he proposes, and we see him carry this out in Act 2, which we talked about last week, at a masked ball, a celebration in which everybody is going to be masked, and people are frequently going to pretend to be somebody that they are not, so that we again have the theme of noting and observing and maybe misobserving and maybe deliberately deceiving through making up, through role-playing. Don Pedro is going to go during the mass ball to Hero and sound her out as to whether she is open to the idea of Claudio. And he does that and then goes to Leonardo and they make an agreement that these two are going to be married. At least they bother to see whether Hero is interested in the idea. However, it seems to have been reported innocently by a servant that Don Pedro is wooing for himself. Nevertheless, there is what you might call a temporary happy ending. Claudio is informed that Hero is going to be pursued by Don Pedro, which is not true, but he is immediately spits forth a soliloquy, farewell, Hero. Immediately, he dumps the idea of Hero without any brokenheartedness whatsoever. And we're wondering what to make of that. It seems, as I say, in terms of a temporary happy ending, that all of this miscommunication has been resolved by the end of Act Two, but it's going to be brought up again by the villain of the play, Don Chan, who is going to, having failed to make the rumor destroy the relationship, is actually going to foment a false play within a play appearance so that people may note it and draw the wrong conclusion that Hero is, having been betrothed for about five minutes, already being unfaithful to Claudio. It's actually, the plot is actually invented by the henchman of Don John, Boracchio, and he is going to go to the window of one of the ladies-in-waiting, Margaret, with whom he seems to be having some sort of relationship and have a tryst at the window at night. But everyone else, all the male members of the party, will be informed that this is Hero letting someone in at the window and they're going to observe this and draw the wrong conclusion that, oh, Hero is nothing but a whore, and that's not my language. That's the, the way that the male members of the play immediately begin to think when they see this. We don't see that pantomime, that play within a play take place. We're told it's going to take place and then it clearly has taken place by Act 4, when all hell breaks loose. But at any rate, there is a plot 
based on false noting, false communication, that is being set up in the Claudio Hero part of the plot. Meanwhile, however, balancing out what will for a while be a very melancholy part of the plot, a very depressing part of the plot, we get the much more merry part of the plot, the two opposites of merry and melancholy, the benign tricking in parallel to the malicious tricking on the Claudio Hero end, the benign tricking of both Benedict and Beatrice into getting back together again. And it's their friends who do this. Don Pedro, who thinks he's been such a success at matchmaking with Claudio and Hero, decides to do a similar matchmaking with Benedict and Beatrice. And it's true, the friends are right, Don Pedro is right, it's true that somebody is going to have to intervene for the own good of these two, because right now they are frozen into position and are never going to break through their own defensiveness if something isn't done about it. So the friends connive, and it's a double trickery. Benedict's male friends, his male buddies, which is basically the male characters of the play, contrive what amounts to, especially since we are coming to this play off of Hamlet, a little play within a play. They pretend to be talking amongst themselves, knowing full well that Benedict is eavesdropping on them people spying on each other, another resemblance to Hamlet for that matter, people always spying and overhearing and so forth, but this time it's benign. And they say in Benedict's hearing, knowing that he will hear this, that, oh, poor Beatrice, she's secretly brokenhearted, madly in love, dying of love, for Benedict, but she doesn't dare admit it because Benedict is being so proud, so prickly, so aloof. We really look down on him a little bit for his behavior here. And poor Beatrice is having to hide it lest she be humiliated, but she's really dying secretly of a broken heart. Benedict overhears all of this and is astounded. He is taken back, aback, by the criticism that he overhears from his friends about his behavior and is amazed to learn that Beatrice is in love with him and gives a remarkable and hilariously funny soliloquy which ends, the world must be peopled. Somebody's got to do it. I guess I have to drop my resistance to this. We have to go through with this. So he proceeds to approach Beatrice again, thinking that she is in love with him, which is correct. I don't know what you call a lie that happens to also be true. It is a true lie 
She is in love with him, and it's true that she won't admit it. But at least it breaks him out of his paralyzed resistance. Then we skip a scene or two in order to get the parallel. Then Beatrice's women friends, particularly her two ladies-in-waiting, Margaret and Ursula, do exactly the same thing with Beatrice in reverse. They claim overheard by Beatrice. They gossip to each other, and it's all a put-up job. They gossip that, oh, poor Benedict, madly, despairingly in love with Beatrice, but she is being so proud and prickly that, you know, we're going to counsel him that, well, maybe you just better bury your broken heart because it doesn't look like she's ever going to budge. And she takes it to heart as well. The result of this is hilarity. The next time we see Benedict, and you have to follow the parallels to get the full humor, Benedict is claiming he's very down and very dour, claiming that the reason for this is that he has a toothache. The real reason, and this is Elizabethan lore, when you fall in love, you fall into love melancholy. You go from being merry to being melancholy. To fall in love is to fall into melancholy. We have the congenital melancholy of Don John, who at least, who at least claims that he is melancholy by nature. That is my humor, the Renaissance theory of the four humors, or bodily fluids that control temperament. I am temperamentally melancholic, but you can also become melancholy. And the easiest way to do that is simply to fall in love, and you were fine before, but now you're mooning all around. You are in adolescence all over again. And he covers it up with this clearly fake claim that he has a toothache. He has also shaved, which reminds us of Beatrice's rant earlier in the play about men with beards. Oh, I could never marry a man with a beard. On the other hand, I could never be with a man who didn't have a beard either. So, you know, draw your conclusion. I'm clearly never going to be with a man. It's all just talk, talk, talk. It's all, again, just defensive, but Benedict has shaved. Why? To look younger. And, as his male friends note and tease him about mercilessly, he's also starting to use scent. He's clearly in love. Beatrice, even though we have to skip a couple of scenes to see the parallel, Beatrice also is in a low mood in Act 3, Scene 4, and she too is making excuses that are transparently false. 
She claims, oh, I'm down because I have a cold. She uses the phrase, I am stuffed, meaning my nose is stuffed up, which the ladies immediately turn into a body double entendre. And in fact, the ladies are quite merry about their double entendres, uh, heavier by the weight of a man, uh, quite explicit sexual joking around. But the two are now propelled from opposite directions on a trajectory of meeting up with each other, and we'll see how it works out. At the same time, it's difficult to hold in mind, especially when we're talking about it abstractly apart from a concrete performance of it, but we hold in mind these parallel plots back to the Claudio Hero plot, which will become much darker. As I say, we don't see the play within a play, this time the malicious play within a play, a Baracchio at the window pretending uh, to be entertaining Hero in the middle of the night, but we know that it takes place. However, while it's taking place, what we get instead is the introduction. It has taken a while, Act 3, Scene 3, and we finally get the introduction of what almost always is present in the Shakespearean comedy. Among the multiple plots are two main plots that parallel each other. We have the two lovers in Midsummer Night's Dream. We have the pairs of lovers here as well. And then in Midsummer Night's Dream, we have the low comedy of the lower class characters. Here we circle back around to the issue of social class again. We have Don Pedro as the highest social class, Leonardo and his brother Antonio below that, with all the people clustered around them. And at the bottom, the lower class characters are here, Dogberry and The Watch. They are police officers or constables, you might say. That's what the watch means. And Dogberry is their leader. And as always in Shakespeare, it is not something that would please a woke kind of attitude. Uh, the lower characters are always made fun of for their ignorance, for their lack of education. It's an affectionate satire, but it is satire of people who are ignorant because they're lower class and who are therefore quite foolish much of the time. And they get things wrong, which fits this play, of course, to a T. The source of the humor with Dogberry and Watch, they are not the only lower class characters to be satirized this way, but their particular form of humor is to mangle language, to use words incorrectly because they're not very educated, and they try to use language and they don't really know what words properly mean, and they most often 
will use the words exact opposite. They will use a word that is the direct opposite of the thing that they really intend. And in Act 3, Scene 3, where we meet them, Shakespeare sets this up in the very first lines of that scene, where Dogberry asks his men, and in particular his second-in-command, Virgis, are you good men and true? Oh, yes, or else it were pity, but they should suffer salvation, body and soul. And Virgis really means damnation, the exact opposite of it. And this is constant. So we are going around being the watch, being the constable. And it is the middle of the night, so we have a lantern. And whenever you encounter anyone who is out after hours, so to speak, uh, Dogberry instructs his men, you are to bid any man to stand in the prince's name. One of the men says, well, what if he will not stand? Why then, take no note of him, but let him go, and presently call the rest of the watch together, and thank God you are rid of a knave. So you are there to apprehend people who might be evildoers and say, stand, in other words, stop. What if they won't? Well, take no note of him, note the thematic word. Just let him go, you know, if he's... We don't want any trouble here. It's not like we're going to get violent about this. And, you know, just leave. And, you know, thank God you're rid of a knave. Which seems absolutely silly. What kind of a law enforcement people simply say, well, we don't want any trouble. We might hold that in mind, however. Shakespeare does make fun of the lower classes. At the same time, he often, as he also did in Midsummer Night's Dream, will grant to those lower classes virtues, even, even saving virtues, that the more educated characters do not have. And occasionally, as Bottom did, they show up in some ways better, perhaps even wiser, than their ostensible betters. So if Shakespeare is making politically incorrect fun, he's not just making fun. Here, these lawmakers who don't want any trouble and therefore refuse to get violent with anybody that they might be breaking the law, that seems absurd. And yet, when we see what happens among the more educated classes who have no excuse for it, people immediately, beginning in Act 4, ready to fight with their best friends and maybe even kill them, we wonder if there isn't some virtue to Dogberry's peace brother kind of attitude. At any rate, these people over here, the henchmen of Don John, Conrad and Boracchio, talking in the middle of a night of the night on a street corner, dumb thing to do, but so it is. And they overhear the whole plot. They overhear the evil henchman talking about the plot that is presently at that very moment being hatched to destroy Claudio and Hero's relationship. And they 
may be uneducated, but the watch knows something bad when they hear it, and they apprehend the henchmen. They arrest them. And luckily, the henchmen do not threaten to become violent or refuse. They go along with this. But they've actually arrested the evildoers. And then Dogberry goes to Don Pedro. And again, the wise people showing themselves up as not perhaps as wise as they think and perhaps not as wise as the lower orders are capable of being. Dogberry tries to inform Leonardo of this plot that they have overheard is going on, but he gets pushed away. I'm sorry, we're, we're very busy with wedding plans and so forth. Just apprehend the suspects, we'll get to that later. In the process, of this. Leonardo will wish later perhaps that he had listened a little more closely to the watch. In the process of this scene, however, there's a lot of talk that doesn't have anything directly to do at all with the plotting and counterplotting that we've just been recounting. It seems to be a pointless bantering and punning on the subject of fashion. What in the world is going on here? And whenever, whenever I teach Shakespeare, I give students a, a well-intended pointer whenever there seems to be a rather senseless babble going on in the play that doesn't advance the action at all, stop and pay close attention and look for clues, because there may be something thematically central that is buried right at that moment. And in fact, there is something right there. Out of the mouths of babes, fashion, that the talk is of Fashion constantly changing. Things are fashionable and then they're not fashionable anymore. And the word deformed, deformed is used and mangled by Dogberry's crew, but yet it's a kind of an unintentionally wise mangling because why are we talking of fashion? The whole world consists of illusory images. Suddenly, a much larger framework of meaning begins tentatively to make itself known in the play. Everything seems to shift and change. Moods change from merry to melancholy, from friendship to hatred and near violence. And the whole world is like that. The world changes as fashion changes. Clothes go in and out of fashion, but so do opinions. So do political ideologies. This is just as true. And in fact, it's maybe even much more true of our world than it was of Shakespeare's world. What's in 
what's out. We sometimes try to say that's a young, immature attitude. That's a sort of high school thing. You've got to be in and you fear being out of date. But it's just as true in politics. It's true in literary theory, for heaven's sake. Everything's shifting and you've got to be cutting edge. You've got to be doing the thing that is done, saying the thing that is said. And what this does is to deform the world, to unform the world. The world seems to have no stable form or identity, but to be constantly shifting. Welcome to the age of the internet and social media. This play is remarkably prophetic of the tendency of noting in our age, mass communication, electronic noting, but of noting to deform the world, to make it us feel as if maybe there is no stable reality at all, but only shifting appearances, shifting fashions, masks people put on and take off again. And even on the most personal level, as we will see, is there a stable personal identity or is our identity just a series of masks? We say, this is what I am and I cannot change that. John John has made the claim that I am melancholy and I can't be anything but melancholy. That is just what I am, a core identity. But the other characters shift from merry to melancholy, from love to anger, almost instantly, and then we'll shift back again. We claim that we have a stable personal identity, but are we really just playing? Are we really just donning a series of masks? Shakespeare is fascinated by this theme in, I would almost say, most of his plays, certainly not just Much Ado. And always lurking behind it is, of course, the fact that Shakespeare is a man of the theater and he is thinking in terms of acting. The famous speech about all the world's stage and we play many parts in it. It's a pat figure of speech. It's almost become a cliche, but Shakespeare takes it very seriously indeed. We are acting at any given moment. And people, when I teach the play, I often ask students to think about this, to discuss this, maybe even to write about it, asking the question, is there any stable human identity? Or are we like actors? Actors simply don role after role, part after part. Is there any core self at the core of it? Or is it just role-playing and it is role-playing what we are? If we peel the layers of the onion, will we find anything at the center of the inside? Most classes find this a bit disturbing and resist the idea and would like to claim that there is a stable identity somewhere down there. 
my sense is that Shakespeare is not that sure of that. There is a skepticism that lurks in the plays about that. But balancing that skepticism, and I've already intimated this in a previous episode, it may be that the ability to change, to be locked into some sort of core identity could be a prison. The ability to change, to shift, can be a good thing. The great ancestor to this in the history of literature as Odysseus in the Odyssey, clear back in our podcasts about the Odyssey, we build Odysseus as what he is called in the very first lines of the Odyssey, the polytropos, the man of many turnings. And he adopts many roles. He disguises himself. He lies through his teeth. He is a direct ancestor of Shakespearean role-playing. And it's his greatest gift. And it brings about his happy ending and the happy ending of the good characters. It may be that Shakespeare is thinking along similar lines here. We have seen plots, good and bad, being set up. Next week, we will see how they play out.